Hello and welcome to episode 62 of Rainy Day Storytime. I'm your host, Miss Kate. Happy to be with you this Tuesday, November 28th, as we continue with Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. So when we left off last week, Meg was having quite a time adjusting to being a wife. She and her new husband, John, had to work together to find neutral ground to thrive as a couple, a place where understanding and patience and forgiveness live. And they not only found it, but nine months later, they brought two beautiful babes into the world, a boy and a girl. So we are picking up today at the top of chapter 29. If you'll open your books to follow along with me. And here we go. Come, Joe, it's time. For what? You don't mean to say you've forgotten that you promised to make a half dozen calls with me today. I've done a good many rash and foolish things in my life, but I don't think I've ever was mad enough to say I'd make six calls in one day with a si when a single one upsets me for a week. Yes, you did, and it was a bargain between us. I was to finish the crayon of Beth for you, and you were to go properly with me and return our neighbor's visits. If it was fair, that was in the bond, and I stand to the letter of my bond, Shylock. There is a pile of clouds in the east. It's not fair, and I don't go. Now that's shirking. It's a lovely day, no prospect of rain, and you pride yourself on keeping promises. So be honorable, come and do your duty, and then be at peace for another six months. At that moment, Joe was particularly absorbed in her dressmaking, for she was man-to-maker-general to the family and took a special credit to herself because she could use a needle as well as a pen. It was very provoking to be arrested in the act of first trying on and ordered out to make calls in her best array on a warm July day. She hated calls of the formal sort and never made any till Amy cornered her with a bargain, bribe, or a promise. In the present instance, there was no escape, and having clashed her scissors rebelliously while protesting that she smelt thunder, she gave in, put away her work, and taking up her hat and gloves with an air of resignation, told Amy the victim was ready. Joe March, you are perverse enough to provoke a saint. You don't intend to make calls in that state, I hope, cried Amy, surveying her with amazement. Why not? I'm neat and cool and comfortable, quite proper for a dusty walk on a warm day. If people care more for my clothes than they do for me, I don't wish to see them. You can dress for both of us and be as elegant as you please. It pays for you to be fine. It doesn't pay for me, and furbelows only worry me. Oh dear, sighed Amy. Now she was in a contrary fit, and it will drive me distracted before I can get her properly ready. I'm sure it's no pleasure to me to go today, but it's a debt we owe society, and there's no one to pay it but you and me. I'll do anything for you, Joe, if you'd only dress yourself nicely and come and help me do the civil. You can talk so well and look so aristocratic in your best things and behave so beautifully if you try that I'm proud of you. I'm afraid to go alone. Do come and take care of me. You're an artful little puss to flatter and wheedle your cross sister in that way. The idea of my being aristocratic and well-bred and your being afraid to go anywhere alone. I don't know which is the more absurd. Well, I'll go if I must and do my best. You shall be commander of the expedition and I'll obey blindly. Will that satisfy you, said Joe, with a sudden change from perversity to lamb-like submission? You're a perfect cherub. Now put on all your best things and I'll tell you how to behave at each place so that you'll make a good impression. I want people to like you and they would if you'd only try to be a little more agreeable. Do your hair the pretty way and put the pink rose in your bonnet. It's becoming and you look sober in your plain suit. Take your light kids and the embroidered handkerchief and we'll stop at Meg's and borrow her white sunshade and then you can have my dove colored one. 
While Amy dressed, she issued orders and Joe obeyed them, not without entering her protest, however, for she sighed as she wrestled into her new organi, frowned darkly at herself as she tied her bonnet strings in an irreproachable bow, wrestled viciously with the pins she put on her collar, wrinkled up her features generally as she shook out the handkerchief whose embroidery was irritating to her nose as the present mission was to her feelings, and when she had squeezed her hands into the tight gloves with two buttons and a tassel at the last touch of elegance, she turned to Amy with an imbecile expression of countenance, saying meekly, I'm perfectly miserable, but if you consider me presentable, I'll die happy. You are highly satisfactory. Turn slowly round and let me get a careful view. Joe revolved and Amy gave a touch here and a touch there and then fell back with her head to one side, observing graciously. Yes, you'll do. Your head is all I could ask for, for that white bonnet with that rose is quite ravishing. Hold back your shoulders and carry your hands easily, no matter if your gloves do pinch. There's one thing you can do well, Joe, and that is wear a shawl. I can't, but it's very nice to see you, and I'm so glad Miss Norton gave you that lovely one. It's simple but handsome, and those folds over the arm are really artistic. Is the point of my mantle in the middle, and have I looped my dress evenly? I like to show my boots, for my feet are pretty, though my nose isn't. You are a thing of beauty and joy forever, said Joe, looking through her hand with an air of a connoisseur at a blue feather against gold hair. Am I to drag my best dress through the dust, or loop it up, please, ma'am? Hold it up when you walk, but drop it in the house. The sweeping style suits you best, and you must learn to trail your skirts gracefully. You haven't half-buttoned one cuff. Do it at once. You'll never look finished if you are not careful about the little details, for they make the pleasing whole. Joe sighed and proceeded to burst the buttons off her glove in doing up her cuff, but at last both were ready and sailed away looking pretty as pictures, as Hannah said, as she hung out the upper window to watch them. Now, Joe, dear, the Chesters are very elegant people, so I want you to put on your best deportment. Don't make any of your abrupt remarks or do anything odd, will you? Just be calm and quiet. That's safe and ladylike, and you can easily do that for 15 minutes, said Amy as they approached the first place, having borrowed the white parasol and been inspected by Meg with a baby on each arm. Let me see. Calm and cool and quiet. Yes, I think I can promise that. I've played the part of a prim young lady on the stage, and I'll try it off. My powers are great, as you'll see, so be easy in your mind, my child. Amy looked relieved, but Naughty Joe took her at her word, for during the first call she sat with every limb gracefully composed, every fold correctly draped, calm as a summer sea, cool as a snowbank, and silent as a sphinx. In vain, Miss Chester alluded to her charming novel, and the Mrs. Chester introduced parties and picnics, the opera, and the fashions. Each were all answered by a smile and a bow and a demur yes or no with a chill on. In vain, Amy telegraphed the word talk, tried to draw her out, and administered covert pokes at her foot. Joe sat as if blandly unconscious of it all, with a deportment-like Maud face, icily regular, splendidly null. What a haughty, uninteresting creature that oldest Miss March is, was the unfortunately audible remark one of the ladies said as the door closed upon the guest. Joe laughed noiselessly all through the hall, but Amy looked disgusted at the first failure of her instructions and very naturally laid the blame on Joe. How could you mistake me so? I merely meant for you to be properly dignified and composed, and you made yourself a perfect stock and stone. Try to be sociable at the lamps, gossip as the other girls do, and be interested in dress and flirtations and whatever nonsense comes up. They move in the best society and are valuable persons for us to know, and I wouldn't fail to make good impression there for anything. 
I'll be agreeable. I'll gossip and giggle and have horrors and raptures over any trifle you like. I rather enjoy this, and now I'll imitate what is called a charming girl, for I can do it, for I have May Chester as a model, and I'll improve upon her. See if the lambs don't say what a lively, nice creature that Joe Marsh is. Amy felt anxious, as she well might, for when Joe turned freakish, there was no knowing when she would stop. Amy's face was a study when she saw her sister skim into the next drawing room, kiss all the young ladies with infusion, beam graciously upon the young gentleman, and join the chat with a spirit which amazed the beholder. Amy was taken possession by Mrs. Lamb, with whom she was a favorite, and forced to hear a long account of Lucretia's last attack, while three delightful young gentlemen hovered near, waiting for a pause when they might rush in and rescue her. So situated, she was powerless to check Joe, who seemed possessed by a spirit of mischief, and talked away as volubly as an old lady. A knot of heads gathered round her, and Amy strained her ears to hear what was going on, for broken sentences filled her with alarm, round eyes and uplifted hands tormented her with curiosity, and frequent peals of laughter made her wild to share the fun. One may imagine her suffering on overhearing fragments of this sort of conversation. She rides splendidly. Who taught her? No one. She used to practice mounting and holding the reins and sitting straight on an old saddle in a tree. And now she rides anything, for she don't know what fear is. And the stableman lets her have horses cheap because she trains them to carry ladies so well. She has such a passion for it. I often tell her if everything else fails, she can be a pretty horsebreaker and get her living so. At this awful speech, Amy contained herself with difficulty, for the impression was being given that she was rather a fast young lady, which was her especial aversion. But what could she do? For the old lady was in the middle of her story, and long before it was done, Joe was off again making more droll revelations and committing still more fearful blunders. Yes, Amy was in despair that day, for all the good beasts were gone, and the three left. One was lame, one was blind, and the other so bulky that he had to put dirt in his mouth before he would start. Nice animal for a pleasure party, wasn't it? Which did she choose? asked one of the laughing gentlemen who enjoyed the subject. None of them. She heard of a young horse at a farmhouse over the river, and though a lady had never ridden him, she resolved to try because he was handsome and spirited. Her struggles were really pathetic. There was no one to bring the horse to the saddle, so she took the saddle to the horse. My dear creature, she actually rode it over the river, put it on her head, and marched up to the barn to the utter amazement of the, of the old man. Did she ride the horse? Of course she did, and had a capital time. I expected to see her brought home in fragments, but she managed him perfectly and was the life of the party. Well, I call that plucky, the young Mr. Lamb turned an approving glance upon Amy, wondering what his mother could be saying to make the girl look so red and uncomfortable. She was still redder and more uncomfortable the moment after when a sudden turn of the conversation introduced the subject of dress. One of the young ladies asked Joe where she got the pretty drab hat that she wore to the picnic, and stupid Joe, instead of mentioning the place where it was bought two years ago, must needs answer with unnecessary frankness, Oh, Amy painted it. You can't buy those soft shades, so we paint ours any color we like. It's a great comfort to have an artistic sister. Isn't that an original idea, cried Mrs. Lamb, who had found Joe great fun. That's nothing compared to some of her brilliant performances. There's nothing the child can't do. Why, she wanted a pair of blue boots for Sally's party, so she just painted her soiled white ones the loveliest shade of sky blue you ever saw, and they looked exactly like satin, added Joe with an air of pride in her sister's accomplishments that exasperated Amy till she felt that she, it would be a relief to throw her card case at her. We read a story of yours the other day and enjoyed it very much, observed the elder Miss Lamb, wishing to compliment the literary lady who did not look the character just then, it must be confessed. 
Any mention of her works always had a bad effect upon Joe, who either grew rigid and looked offended, or changed the subject with a brushed remark as now. Sorry you could not find anything better to read. I write that rubbish because it sells, and ordinary people like it. Are you going to New York this winter? As Miss Lamb had enjoyed the story, this speech was not exactly grateful or complimentary. The minute it was made, Joe saw her mistake, but fearing to make the matter worse, suddenly remembered that it was for her to make the first move towards departure, and did so with an abruptness that left three people with half-finished sentences in their mouths. "'Amy, we must go. Good-bye, dear. Do come and see us. We are pining for a visit. I don't dare ask you, Mr. Lamb, but if you should come, I don't think I shall have the heart to send you away.' Joe said this with such a droll imitation of Maid Chester's gushing style that Amy got out of the room as rapidly as possible, feeling a strong desire to laugh and cry at the same time. "'Didn't I do well?' asked Joe with a satisfied air as they walked away. "'Nothing could have been worse,' was Amy's crushing reply. "'What possessed you to tell those stories about my saddle and the hats and the boots and all the rest of it?' "'Why, it's funny and it amuses people. They know we are poor, so it's no use pretending that we have grooms.' buy three or four hats a season and have things as easy and fine as they do. You needn't go and tell them all our little shifts and expose our poverty in that perfectly unnecessary way. You haven't a bit of proper pride and never will learn when to hold your tongue and when to speak, said Amy despairingly. Poor Joe looked abashed and silently chafed the end of her nose with the stiff handkerchief as if performing a penance for her misdemeanors. How shall I behave here, she asked as they approached the third mansion. Just as you please. I wash my hands of you, was Amy's short answer. Then I'll enjoy myself. The boys are at home and we'll have a comfortable time. Goodness knows I need a little change, for elegance has a bad effect upon my constitution, returned Joe, gruffly being disturbed by her failures to suit. An enthusiastic welcome from three big boys and several pretty children speedily soothed her ruffled feelings, and leaving Amy to entertain the hostess and Mr. Tudor, who happened to be calling likewise, Joe devoted herself to the young folks and found the change refreshing. She listened to college stories with deep interest, caressed pointers and poodles without a murmur, agreed heartily that Tom Brown was a brick regardless of the improper form of the praise, and when one lad proposed a visit to his turtle tank, she went with an alclarity which caused Mama to smile upon her as that motherly lady settled a cap which was left in a ruinous condition by the Philol hugs, bear-like but affectionate, and dearer to her than the most faultless coiffer from the hands of an inspired Frenchwoman. Leaving her sister to her own devices, Amy proceeded to enjoy herself to her heart's content. Mr. Tudor's uncle had married an English lady who was the third cousin to a living lord, and Amy regarded the whole family with a great respect. For in spite of her American birth and breeding, she possessed that reverence for titles which haunts the best of us, that unacknowledged loyalty to the early faith in kings which set the most democratic nation under the sun in a ferment at the coming of the royal yellow-haired laddie some years ago, and which still has something to do with the love of the young country bears for the old, like that of a big son for an imperious little mother who held him while she could and let him go with a farewell scolding when he rebelled. But even the satisfaction of talking with a distant connection of the British nobility did not render Amy forgetful of the time, and when the proper number of minutes had passed, she reluctantly tore herself from the aristocratic society and looked about for Joe, fervently hoping that her incorrigible sister would not be found in any position which should bring disgrace upon the name of March. It might have been worse, but Amy considered it bad, for Joe sat on the grass with an encampment of boys about her, a dirty-footed dog reposing on the skirt of her state and festival dress as she related one of Lori's pranks to her admiring audience. 
One small child was poking turtles with Amy's cherished parasol. A second was eating gingerbread over Joe's best bonnet, and the third was playing ball with her gloves. But all were enjoying themselves, and when Joe collected her damaged property to go, her escort accompanied her, begging her to come again. It was such fun to hear about Lori's larks. Capital boys, aren't they? I feel quite young and brisk again after that, said Joe, strolling along with her hands behind her, partly from habit and partly to conceal the bespattered parasol. Why do you always avoid Mr. Tudor, asked Amy, wisely refraining from any comment upon Joe's dilapidated appearance. I don't like him. He puts on airs and he snubs his sisters, worries his father, and doesn't speak respectfully to his mother. Laurie says he's fast and I don't consider him a desirable acquaintance, so I leave him alone. You might treat him civilly, at least. You gave him a cool nod, and just now you bowed and smiled in the politest way to Tommy Chamberlain, whose father keeps a grocery store. If you had just reversed the nod and the bow, it would have been right, said Amy reprovingly. No, it wouldn't, returned perverse Joe. I neither like nor respect nor admire Tudor, though his grandfather's uncle's nephew's niece was third cousin to a lord. Tommy is poor and bashful and good and very clever, and I think well of him, and like to show that I do, for he is a gentleman in spite of all the brown paper parcels. It's no use trying to argue with you, began Amy. Not in the least, my dear, cut in Joe, so let us look amicable and drop a card here at the King's, who are evidently out, for which I am deeply grateful. The family card case having done its duty, the girls walked on, and Joe uttered another thanksgiving on reaching the fifth house and being told that the young ladies were engaged. Now let us go home and never mind Aunt March today. We can run down there any time, and it's really a pity to trail through the dust in our best bibs and tuckers when we're tired and cross. Speak for yourself, if you please. Aunt likes to have us to pay her a compliment of coming in style and making a formal call. It's a little thing to do, but it gives her pleasure, and I don't believe it will hurt things half so much as letting dirty dogs and clumping boys spoil them. Stoop down and let me take the crumbs off your bonnet. What a good girl you are, Amy, said Joe, with a repentant glance from her own damaged costume to that of her sister, which was fresh and spotless still. They found Aunt Carol with the old lady, both absorbed in some very interesting subject, but they dropped it as soon as the girls came in with a conscious look which betrayed that they had been talking about their nieces. Joe was not in good humor, and the perverse fit returned, but Amy, who had virtuously done her duty, kept her temper and pleased everybody in a most angelic frame of mind. This amicable spirit was felt at once, and both the aunts my-deared her affectionately, looking what they afterwards said empathetically, that child improves every day. "'Are you going to help about the fair, dear?' asked Miss Carroll, as Amy sat down beside her with a confiding air elderly people like so well in the young. "'Yes, Mrs. Chester asked me if I would, and offered me to tend a table, as I have nothing but my time to give.' I'm not, put in Joe decidedly. I hate to be patronized, and the Chesters think it's a great favor to allow us to help with their highly connected fare. I wonder you consented, Amy. They only want you to work. I'm willing to work. It's for the freed men as well as the Chesters, and I think it's very kind of them to let me share the labor and the fun. Patronage doesn't trouble me when it's well meant. Quite right and proper. I like your graceful spirit, my dear. It's a pleasure to help people who appreciate our efforts. Some don't, and that is trying, observed Aunt March, looking over her spectacles at Joe, who sat apart rocking herself with a somewhat morose expression. If Joe had only known what a great happiness was wavering in the balance for one of them, she would have turned dove-like in a minute. 
but unfortunately we don't have windows in our breasts and cannot see what goes on in the minds of our friends. Better for us that we cannot as a general thing, but now and then it would be such a comfort, such a saving time and temper. By her next speech, Jo deprived herself of several years of pleasure and received a timely lesson in the art of holding her tongue. I don't like favors. They oppress and make me feel like a slave. I'd rather do everything for myself and be perfectly independent. <clears throat> coughed Aunt Carol softly and looked at Aunt March. I told you so, said Aunt March with a decided nod to Aunt Carol. Mercifully unconscious of what she had done, Joe sat with her nose in the air and a revolutionary aspect which was anything but inviting. Do you speak French, dear? asked Mrs. Carroll, laying a hand on Amy's. Pretty well, thanks to Aunt March, who let Esther talk to me as often as I liked, replied Amy with a grateful look, which caused the old lady to smile affably. How are you at languages? asked Mrs. Carroll of Joe. Don't know a word. I'm very stupid about studying anything. Can't bear French. It's such a slippery, silly sort of language, was the brusque reply. Another look passed between the ladies, and Aunt March said to Amy, You are quite strong and well now, my dear, I believe. Eyes don't trouble you any more, do they? Not at all. Thank you, ma'am. I'm very well and mean to do great things next winter, so that I may be ready for Rome when that joyful time arrives. Good girl, you deserve to go, and I'm sure you will some day, said Aunt March, with an approving pat on the head, as Amy picked up her ball for her. Cross patch, draw a latch, sit by the fire and spin, squalled Polly, bending down from his perch on the back of her chair to peep into Joe's face with such a comical air of impertinent inquiry that it was impossible to help from laughing. Most observing bird, said the old lady. Come and take a walk, my dear, cried Polly, hopping towards a china closet with a look suggestive of a lump of sugar. Thank you, I will. Come, Amy. And Joe brought the visit to an end, feeling more strongly than ever that calls did have a bad effect upon her constitution. She shook hands in a gentlemanly manner, but Amy kissed both the aunts, and the girls departed, leaving behind them the impression of a shadow and sunshine, which impression caused Aunt March to say, as they vanished, You better do it, Mary. I'll supply the money, and Aunt Carol to reply decidedly, I certainly will, if her father and mother consent. Chapter 30 Mrs. Chester's fare was so very elegant and select that it was considered a great honor by the young ladies of the neighborhood to be invited to take a table, and everyone was much interested in the matter. Amy was asked, but Joe was not, which was fortunate for all parties, as her elbows were decidedly akimbo at this period of her life, and it took a good many hard knocks to teach her how to get on easily. The haughty, uninteresting creature was let severely alone, but Amy's talent and taste were duly complimented by the offer of the art table, and she exerted herself to prepare and secure appropriate, valuable contributions to it. Everything went on smoothly till the day before the fair opened. Then there occurred one of the little skirmishes, which is almost impossible to avoid, when some five-and-twenty women, old and young, with all their private piques and prejudices, tried to work together. May Chester was rather jealous of Amy because the latter was a greater favorite than herself, and just at this time several trifling circumstances occurred to increase this feeling. Amy's dainty pen and ink work entirely eclipsed May's painted vases. That, that one thorn and then the all-conquering tutor had danced four times with Amy at the late party and only once with May. That was thorn number two. But the chief grievance that rankled her soul and gave her an excuse for her unfriendly conduct was a rumor which some obliging gossip had whispered to her that the March girls had made fun of her at the Lambs. 
All the blame of this should have fallen upon Joe, for her naughty imitation had been too lifelike to escape detection, and the frolicsome lambs had permitted the joke to escape. No hint of this had reached the culprits, however, and Amy's dismay can be imagined when the very evening before the fair, as she was putting the last touches to her pretty table, Mrs. Chester, who, of course, resented the supposed ridicule of her daughter, said in a bland tone, but with a cold look, I find, dear, that there is some feeling among the young ladies about my giving this table to any one but my girls, as this is the most prominent and some say the most attractive table of all, and they are the chief getter-uppers of the fair, it is thought best for them to take this place. I'm sorry, I know you are too sincerely interested in the cause to mind a little personal disappointment, and you shall have another table if you like. Mrs. Chester had fancied beforehand that it would be easy to deliver this little speech, but when the time came, she found it rather difficult to utter it naturally with Amy's unsuspicious eyes looking straight at her, full of surprise and trouble. Amy felt that there was something behind this, but could not guess what it was, and said quietly, feeling hurt and showing that she did, Perhaps you had rather I took no table at all. Now, my dear, don't have any ill feeling. I beg, it's a mercy, a matter of expediency, you see. My girls will naturally take the lead, and this table is considered their proper place. I think it very appropriate to you, and feel very grateful for your efforts to make it so pretty. But we must give up our private wishes, of course, and I will see that you have a good place elsewhere. Wouldn't you like the flower table? The little girls undertook it, but they are discouraged. You could make a charming thing of it, and the flower table is always attractive, you know. Especially to gentlemen, added May, with a look which enlightened Amy as to the one cause of her sudden fall from favor. She colored angrily, but took no other notice of that girlish sarcasm, and answered with unexpected amiability. It shall be as you please, Mrs. Chester. I give up my place here at once, and attend to the flowers, if you like. You can put your own things on your table, if you prefer, began May, feeling a little conscience-stricken as she looked at the pretty racks and the painted shelves, and the quaint illuminations Amy had so carefully made and so gracefully arranged. She meant it kindly, but Amy mistook her meaning, and said quickly, Oh, certainly, if they're in your way, and sweeping her contributions into her apron pell-mell, she walked off feeling that herself and her works of art had been insulted past forgiveness. Now she's mad. Oh, dear, I wish I hadn't asked you to speak, Mama, said May, looking disconsolately at the empty spaces on her table. Girls' quarrels are soon over, returned her mother, feeling a trifle ashamed of her own part in this one, as she well might. The little girls hailed Amy and her treasures with delight, which cordial reception somewhat soothed her perturbed spirit, and she fell to work determined to succeed florally, if she could not artistically. But everything seemed against her. It was late, and she was tired, and everyone was too busy with their own affairs to help her, and the little girls were only hindrances, for the deers fussed and chattered like so many magpies, making a great deal of confusion in their artless efforts to preserve the most perfect order. The evergreen arch wouldn't stay firm after she got it up, but wiggled and threatened to tumble down at her head when the hanging baskets were filled. Her best tile got a splash of water which left the sepia tear on Cupid's cheek. She bruised her hands with hammering and got cold working in a draft, which last affliction filled her with apprehensions for the morrow. Any girl reader who has suffered afflictions will sympathize with poor Amy and wish her well through her task. There was a great indignation at the house when she told her story that evening. Her mother said it was a shame, but told her that she had done right. Beth declared that she wouldn't go to the fair at all, and Joe demanded why she didn't take all her pretty things and leave those mean people to get on without her. Because they are mean is no reason why I should be. I hate such things, and though I think I've right to be hurt, I don't intend to show it. 
They will feel that more than angry speeches or huffy actions, won't they, Marmy? That's the right spirit, my dear. A kiss for a blow is always best, though it's not very easy to give it sometimes, said her mother with an air of one who has learned the difference between preaching and practicing. In spite of various very natural temptations to resent and retaliate, Amy adhered to her resolution all the next day, bent on conquering her enemy by kindness. She began well, thanks to a silent reminder that came to her unexpectedly but most opportunely. As she arranged her table that morning while the little girls were in the anteroom filling the baskets, she took up her pet production, a little book, the antique cover of which her father had found among his treasures, and in which on the leaves of vellum she had beautifully illuminated different texts. As she turned the pages, rich and dainty devices with very pardonable pride, her eye fell upon one verse that made her stop and think. Framed in a brilliant scroll work of scarlet blue and gold, with little spirits of goodwill helping one another up and down along the thorns and flowers, were the words, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I ought, but I don't, thought Amy, as her eye went from the bright page to May's discontented face behind the big vases that could not hide the vacancies her pretty work had once filled. Amy stood for a minute, turning the leaves in her hand, reading on each some sweet rebuke for all heart-burnings and uncharitableness of spirit. Many wise and true sermons are preached to us every day by unconscious ministers in street, school, office, or home. Even a fair table may become a pulpit if it can offer the good and helpful words which are never out of season. Amy's conscience preached her a little sermon from that text, then and there, and she did what many of us don't always do, took the sermon to heart and straightway put it into practice. A group of girls were standing by May's table admiring the pretty things and talking over the change of saleswoman. They dropped their voices, but Amy knew they were speaking of her, hearing one side of the story and judging accordingly. It was not pleasant, but a better spirit had come over her, and presently a chance offered for proving it. She heard May say sorrowfully, It's too bad, for there's no time to make other things, and I don't want to fill up with odds and ends. The table was just complete, then now it's spoiled. I dare say she put them back if you asked her, suggested one. How could I after all the fuss, began May, but she did not finish, for Amy's voice came across the hall, saying pleasantly, You may have them and welcome without asking if you want them. I was just thinking I'd offer to put them back, for they belong on your table rather than mine. Here they are. Please take them and forgive me if I was hasty in carrying them away last night. As she spoke, Amy returned her contributions with a nod and a smile and hurried away again, feeling that it was easier to do a friendly thing than it was to stay and be thanked for it. Now I call that lovely of her, don't you? cried one girl. May's answer was inaudible, but another young lady, whose temper was evidently a little soured by making lemonade, added with a disagreeable laugh, very lovely, for she knew she wouldn't sell them at her own table. Now that was hard. When we make little sacrifices, we like to have them appreciated, at least. And for a minute, Amy was sorry she'd done it, feeling that the virtue was not always its best reward. But it is, as she presently discovered, for her spirits began to rise and her table to blossom under her skillful hands. The girls were very kind, and that one little act seemed to have cleared the atmosphere amazingly. It was a very long day and a hard one to Amy, as she sat behind her table, quite alone, for the little girls deserted her very soon. Few cared to buy flowers in the summer, and her bouquets began to droop long before night. The art table was the most attractive in the room. There was a crowd about it all the day long, and tenders were constantly flying to and fro with important faces and rattling money boxes. Amy often looked wistfully across, longing to be there, where she felt at home and happy instead of in the corner with nothing to do. 
It might seem no hardship to some of us, but to a pretty blithe young girl it is not only tedious but very trying, and the thought of being found there in the evening by her family and Laurie and his friends made it a real martyrdom. She did not go home till night, and then she looked so pale and quiet that they knew the day had been a hard one. Though she made no complaint and did not even tell what she had done, her mother gave her an extra cordial cup of tea. Beth helped her dress and made a charming little wreath for her hair, while Joe astonished her family by getting herself up with the usual care and hinting darkly that the tables were about to be turned. Don't do anything rude, pray, Joe. I won't have any fuss made, so let it all pass and behave yourself, begged Amy, as she departed early, hoping to find a reinforcement of flowers to refresh her poor little table. I merely intend to make myself entrancingly agreeable to everyone I know, and to keep them in your corner as long as possible. Teddy and his boys will lend a hand, and we'll have a good time yet, returned Joe, leaning over the gate to watch for Lori. Presently the familiar tramp was heard in the dusk, and she ran out to meet him. Is that my boy? As sure as this is my girl's, and Laurie tucked her hand under his arm with the air of a man whose every wish was gratified. Oh, Teddy, such doings, and Joe told Amy's wrongs with sisterly zeal. A flock of our fellows are going to drive over by and by, and I'll be hanged if I don't make them buy every flower she's got and camp down before her table afterwards, said Laurie, espousing her cause with warmth. The flowers are not all that nice, Amy says, and the fresh ones may not arrive in time. I don't wish to be unjust or suspicious, but I shouldn't wonder if they never came at all. When people do one mean thing, they're usually very, very likely to do another, observed Joe in a disgusted tone. Didn't Hayes give you the best out of our gardens? I told him to. I didn't know that. He forgot, I suppose. And as your grandpa was poorly, I didn't like wor to worry him by asking, though I did want some. Now, Joe, how could you think that there was any need of asking? They are just as much yours as mine. Don't we always go halves in everything, began Laurie, in a tone that always made Joe turn thorny. Gracious, I hope not. Half of some of your things wouldn't suit me at all. But we mustn't stand philandering here. I've got to help Amy. So you go and make yourself splendid. And if you'd be so very kind as to let Hayes take an, a few nice flowers up to the hall, I'll bless you forever. Couldn't you do it now, asked Laurie, so suggestively that Joe shut the gate in his face with inhospitable haste and called through the bars, Go away, Teddy, I'm busy. Thanks to the conspirators, the tables were turned that night, for Hayes sent up a wilderness of flowers with a lovely basket arranged in his best manner for the centerpiece. Then the March family turned out en masse, and Joe exerted herself to some purpose, for people not only came but stayed, laughing at her nonsense, admiring Amy's taste, and apparently enjoying themselves very much. Laurie and his friends gallantly threw themselves into the breach, bought up the bouquets, encamped before the table, and made that corner the liveliest spot in the room. Amy was in her element now, and out of gratitude, if nothing more, was as sprightly and gracious as possible, coming to the conclusion about that time that virtue was its own reward after all. Joe behaved herself with exemplary propriety, and when Amy was happily surrounded by her guard of honor, Joe circulated about the hall, picking up various bits of gossip which enlightened her upon the subject of the Chester change of base. She reproached herself for her share of the ill feeling and resolved to exonerate Amy as soon as possible. She also discovered what Amy had done about the things in the morning and considered her a model of magnanimity. As she passed the art table, she glanced over it for her sister's things but saw no sign of them. Tucked away out of sight, I dare say, thought Joe, who could forgive her own wrongs, but hotly resented any insult offered to her family. Good evening, Miss Joe. How does Amy get on? asked May with a conciliatory air, for she wanted to show that she could also be generous. 
She sold everything she had that was worth selling, and now she's enjoying herself. The flower table is always attractive, you know, especially to gentlemen. Joe couldn't resist giving that little slap. But Maid took it so meekly she regretted it the minute after and fell to praising the great vases which still remained unsold. Is Amy's illumination anywhere about? I took a fancy to buy that for father, said Joe, very anxious to learn the fate of her sister's work. Everything of Amy's sold long ago. I took care that the right people saw them, and they made a nice little sum of money for us, returned May, who had overcome sundry small temptations as well as Amy that day. Much gratified, Joe rushed back to tell the good news, and Amy looked both touched and surprised by the report of May's words and manner. Now, gentlemen, I want you to go and do your duty by the other tables as generously as you have mine, especially the art table, she said, ordering out Teddy's own, as the girls called the college friends. Charge, Chester, charge is the motto for that table, but do your duty like men and you'll get your money's worth of art in every sense of the word, said the irrepressible Joe, as the devoted phalanx prepared to take the field. To hear is to obey, but March is fairer far than May, said little Parker, making a frantic effort to be both witty and tender, and getting promptly quenched by Laurie, who said, Very well, my son, for a small boy, and walked him off with a paternal pat on the head. By the vases, whispered Amy to Laurie, as a final heaping of coals of fire on her enemy's head. To May's great delight, Mr. Lawrence not only bought the vases, but pervaded the hall with one under each arm. The other gentlemen speculated with equal rashness in all sorts of frail trifles and wandered helplessly about afterwards burdened with wax flowers and painted fans and filigree portfolios and other useful and inappropriate purchases. Aunt Carol was there, heard the story, looked pleased, and said something to Mrs. March in the corner, which made the latter lady beam with satisfaction and watch Amy with a face full of mingled pride and anxiety, though she did not betray the cause of her pleasure till several days later. The fair was pronounced a success, and when May bade Amy good night, she did not gush as usual, but gave her an affectionate kiss and a look which said, Forgive and forget. That satisfied Amy, and when she got home, she found the vases paraded on the parlor chimney piece with a great bouquet in each. The reward of merit for a magnanimous march, as Laurie announced with flourish. You've a deal more principle and generosity and nobleness of character than I ever gave you credit for, Amy. You behave sweetly, and I respect you with all my heart, said Joe warmly as they brushed their hair together that night. Yes, we all do, and love her for being so ready to forgive. It must have been dreadfully hard after working so long and setting your heart on selling your own pretty things. I don't believe I could have done it as kindly as you did, added Beth from her pillow. My girls, you needn't praise me so. I only did as I'd been done by. You laugh at me when I say I want to be a lady, but I mean a true gentlewoman in mind and manners, and I try to do it as far as I know how. I can't explain exactly, but I want to be above the little meannesses and follies and faults that spoil so many women. I'm far from it now, but I do my best and hope in time to be what mother is. Amy spoke earnestly, and Joe said with a cordial hug, I understand now what you mean, and I'll never laugh at you again. You are getting on faster than you think, and I'll take lessons of you in true politeness, for you've learned the secret, I believe. Try away, dearie, you'll get your reward some day, and no one will be more delighted than I shall. A week later, Amy did get her reward, and poor Joe found it hard to be delighted. A letter came from Aunt Carol, and Mrs. March's face was illuminated to such a degree when she read it that Joe and Beth, who were with her, demanded what glad tidings were. Aunt Carol is going abroad next month, and wants me to go with her, burst Joe, flying out of the chair in an uncontrollable rapture. No, dear, it's not you. It's Amy. Oh, mother, she's too young. It's my turn first. I've wanted it for so long. It would do me so much good and be altogether splendid. I must go. 
I'm afraid it's impossible, Joe. Aunt says Amy decidedly, and it's not for us to dictate when she offers such a favor. It's always so. Amy has all the fun, and I have all the work. It isn't fair. It isn't fair, cried Joe passionately. I'm afraid it's partly your own fault, dear. When Aunt spoke to me the other day, she regretted your blunt manners and your too independent spirit. And here she writes as if quoting something you had said. I planned at first to ask Joe, but as favors burden her and she hates French, I won't venture to invite her. Amy is more docile, will make a good companion for Flo, and receive gratefully any help the trip may give her. Oh, my tongue, my abominable tongue. Why can't I learn to keep it quiet, groaned Joe, remembering the words which had been her undoing. When she had heard the explanation of the quoted phrases, Mrs. March said sorrowfully, I wish you could have gone, but there is no hope for it at this time. So try to bear it cheerfully and don't sadden Amy's pleasures by reproaches or regrets. I'll try, said Joe, winging hard, as she knelt down to pick up the basket she had joyfully upset. I'll take a leaf out of her book and try not only to seem glad, but to be so, and not grudge her one minute of happiness, but it won't be easy, for it is a dreadful disappointment, and poor Joe bedewed the little fat pincushion she held with several very bitter tears. Joe, dear, I'm very selfish, but I couldn't spare you, and I'm glad you ain't going quite yet, whispered Beth, embracing her, basket and all, with such a clinging touch and a loving face that Joe felt comforted in the spirit and sharp regret that made her want to box her ears and humbly beg Aunt Carol to burden her with this favor and see how gratefully she would bear it. By the time Amy came in, Joe was able to take her part in the family jubilation, not quite as heartily as usual, perhaps, but without repining at Amy's good fortune. The young lady herself received the news as tidings of great joy, went about, the solemn so went about in a solemn sort of rapture, and began to sort her colors and pack her pencils that evening, leaving such trifles as clothes and money and passports to those less absorbed in the visions of art than herself. It isn't a mere pleasure trip to me, girls, she said, impressively, as she scraped the, her best palette. It will decide my career, for if I have any genius, I shall find out in Rome, and I will do something to prove it. Suppose you haven't, said Joe, sewing away with red eyes at the new collars, which were to be handed over to Amy. Then I shall come home and teach drawing for a living, replied the aspirant, for fame with a philosophic composure. But she made a wry face at the prospect and scratched away at her palate, as if bent on vigorous measures before she gave up her hopes. No, you won't. You'll hate hard work and you'll marry some rich man and come home to sit in the lap of luxury all of your days, said Joe. Your predictions sometimes come to pass, but I don't believe that this one will. I'm sure I wish it would, for if I can't be an artist myself, I should like to be able to help those who are, said Amy, smiling, as if the part of a lady bountiful would suit her better than any such poor drawing teacher. Hmm, said Joe with a sigh. If you wish it, then you'll have it, for your wishes are always granted. Mine are never. Would you like to go, asked Amy, thoughtfully, flattening her nose with her knife. Rather... Well, in a year or two, I'll send for you, and we'll dig in the forms for relics, and we'll carry out all the plans that we've made for so many times. Thank you. I'll remind you of your promise when that joyful day comes, if it ever does, returned Joe, accepting the vague but magnificent offer as gratefully as she could. There was not much time for preparation, and the house was in a ferment till Amy was off. Joe bore up very well till the last flutter of blue ribbon vanished when she retired to her refuge, the garret, and cried till she couldn't cry any more. Amy, likewise, bore up stoutly till the steamer sailed. Then, just as the gangway was about to be withdrawn, it came suddenly over her that a whole ocean was soon to roll between her and those she loved best, and she clung to Laurie, the last lingerer, saying with a sob, 
Oh, take care of them for me, and if anything should happen, I will, dear, I will, and if anything happens, I'll come and comfort you, whispered Lori, little dreaming how sad he would be called upon to keep this word. So Amy sailed away to find the old world, which is always new and beautiful to young eyes, while her father and friends watched her from the shore, fervently hoping that none but gentle fortunes would befall the happy-hearted girl, who waved her hand to them till they could see nothing but the summer sun dazzling on the sea. That brings us to the end of the podcast today. I hope you'll join me this Thursday, November 30th, as we continue with Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Till then, take care. Have a wonderful day. This is Miss Kate signing off, and may all your rainy days include a rainbow.